Unsolved, Unbelievable, and Unjust, a podcast where we dive into the most chilling of all cold cases and take a look at crimes with facts that are so crazy that they are, well, unbelievable. And lastly, we examine instances where the justice system has terribly failed us. I'm Ashley, your host, and thanks for tuning in. true crime lovers. I'm Ashley, and you're listening to Unsolved, Unbelievable, and Unjust. This week, we're going to take a look at the unbelievable case of the abductions of Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Georgina, or more commonly called Gina Jesus. We're going to discover how Ariel Castro managed to keep them imprisoned for over a decade without detection while leading a seemingly normal life. We'll discover how his family members and girlfriends stayed overnight at the house while his prisoners were there, how neighbors reported seeing suspicious behavior and the mistreatment of women at Castro's home to the police, how family members became suspicious and demanded to search Castro's home while the girls were there, how the FBI were told to investigate Castro in relation to one of the girls' disappearances, yet still no one found his victims. The scope and magnitude of Ariel Castro's crimes is unprecedented. This is a direct quote from a report by Dr. Gregory Sathoff, who works with the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. Ariel Castro committed heinous crimes over a period of 11 years, crimes so egregious they would later result in a 977-count indictment and the maximum sentence the state of Ohio can impose. This is the story of a man who kidnapped not one, not two, but three young girls and kept them imprisoned in his home for more than a decade, using them for whatever sexual gratification he desired and repeatedly beating and assaulting them. However, more importantly than that, this is the story of three amazing women who held out hope in the face of unbelievable circumstances and had the strength and courage required to survive and escape. Let's start by taking a deeper look into the man behind these horrific crimes, Ariel Castro. Ariel Castro was born July 10th, 1960 in Douai, Puerto Rico, to Lillian Rodriguez and Pedro Castro, um, more commonly called Nona. When Ariel was young, his father began having an affair with a younger woman who lived next door, although since they lived in the mountains, this was still quite far away. This affair went on for a long time and even resulted in several children. When Ariel's mother found out about the affair in 1962, she confronted Nona about it. He then abandoned the family and moved in with the other woman and his children with her next door. Lillian decided then to pack up and move to Pennsylvania with her father, leaving her four children to be raised by her mother. So at the age of two, Ariel had been abandoned by both of his parents. Ariel would later claim that he was sexually assaulted by a male family friend while living with his grandmother, and that this abuse continued for over a year. Now, you might be feeling bad with, uh, for Ariel at this point, but trust me, your sympathy is not going to last long. Four years after moving to the United States, Lillian asked her mother to send the children to her, 
And in 1966, Ariel and his four siblings would move in with their mother and their grandfather in Reading, Pennsylvania. While living with his mother, Ariel claimed she would physically abuse him on a daily basis. In 1968, Pedro Castro and Gladys, his mistress, moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and they were soon followed by several of Ariel's extended family members. Then in 1970, Lillian decided to move her family to Cleveland, and they, they would decide to settle down there. Ariel was a below-average student in school, and he was once suspended for touching a girl's breast. However, he was popular and had many girlfriends. After high school, he began establishing his, himself as one of Cleveland's most prominent Latin musicians. Um, he played the bass guitar. And he would continue playing the bass guitar uh, right up until his arrest. In 1980, Lillian moved her family to a new house in Cleveland. And this was just one block away from Pedro and Gladys. This is where Ariel would first meet Gramilda Figuaro. Sorry, I just completely butchered that name. Anyways, people called her Nilda. Nilda was a shy 17-year-old Puerto Rican girl who lived on his street. Within a week of meeting each other, the two quickly became a couple. And then one night after returning Nilda home at the end of a date, Nilda's mom confronted Ariel and demanded that he take her home with him. And he was just like, all right, I guess. And Nilda then moved in with Ariel at his family home. She quickly became pregnant, and Ariel, who was now working as a drill press operator and playing as a Latin musician in uh, various bands on the side, he moved them into their own two-bedroom apartment. After their first child, Ariel Anthony Castro Jr. was born in September 1981, Ariel began physically abusing Nilda constantly. He also started controlling every aspect of her life, including what she would wear and when she could leave the apartment. Nilda soon became pregnant with their second child, and after Angie Castro was born in January 1983, Ariel's beatings only became worse. The family moved into Nilda's father's house to save money, but even that did not stop the abuse. In 1985, they moved into a new apartment after Ariel got a job job, as a driver for, for Kumba Motors. With Nilda's father out of the picture, the beatings got even worse, and Nilda even ended up in the hospital on a few occasions with a broken nose and cracked ribs. She was once admitted in the hospital for several days after being hit in the head with a metal bar. Then in January 1988, while she was nine months pregnant with her third child, Ariel beat her over the head with a dumbbell. That is disgusting. Luckily, their daughter Emily was born healthy only three days later. The abuse continued after Emily was born, and just over a year later, on September 30th, 1989, it finally drew the attention of Cleveland police when Ariel was arrested on suspicion of assault. However, when Nilda would not cooperate with pressing charges, the police had to let him go. Ariel Castro Jr. was also physically abused by his father, usually while trying to protect his mother, but for some reason, Ariel Castro Castro never laid a finger on his daughter's. In 1990, Nilda became pregnant again, later giving birth to their fourth and final child, Arlene, in September. While Nilda was pregnant, Ariel was hired as a bus driver, where he would continue to work work for the next 22 years. 
In April 1992, Ariel Castro purchased a five-bedroom home located at 2207 Seymour Drive. Family, friends, and relatives reported that Ariel never let anyone pass the living room when visiting the home and that there were padlocks on every door. Windows were also tinted so no one could see in from the outside. So that's creepy as fuck. Nilda became pregnant again while living in the new house. However, Ariel did not want any more children and proceeded to kick and punch Nilda in the stomach until she aborted the fetus. Nilda later reported that while living on Seymour Drive, she would run to neighbors' houses to escape the abuse from Ariel. However, the neighbors refused to get involved or call the police as they feared him. Ariel continued to be a prominent musician in the jazz scene in Cleveland on top of his job as a school bus driver. When he would travel to go on gigs as a musician, he would lock Nilda in the children and the children in the house for days at a time. In October 1993, Ariel pushed Nilda down the stairs and she cracked her head open and suffered permanent brain damage. She soon started suffering from seizures and required brain surgery. During the surgery, the doctors discovered that the fall had caused Nilda's brain to bleed, the blood eventually clotted, and then that clot had hardened into a brain tumor. This tumor was unoperable and would prove fatal. Less than a month after returning home from the hospital, Ariel attacked Nilda. Nilda called the police and reported that Ariel threw her to the ground and started kicking her in the head and the face. But she would later recant her allegations when in front of the jury in February 1994 and Ariel was let go with no charges. Soon after the initial attack that led to Nilda calling the police, Ariel moved out of the house on Seymour Drive and left Nilda to live there with the children. However, he soon started showing up unannounced to the house and attacked her and kicked her in the head again. Nilda then packed up all of the children and left for good. Thank goodness. It was about time. While in neurological physiotherapy after yet another brain surgery, Nilda met a security guard at the hospital who she and the children moved in with in July 1995. On May 16, 1966, Fernando Collin, the security guard, filed a criminal complaint against Ariel Castro for attempting to run him over for his car. And he did this in front of all of his four children. On January 2, 1997, Nilda was awarded full custody of the four children with no visitation rights to Ariel Castro. Thank goodness. In May 2000, Ariel met a woman named Lillian Roldan, who he began dating. Miraculously, she says that they had a completely normal relationship and that he always treated her well. It's been speculated that this is because um, she had his mother's name, and that is just completely creepy. He even proposed to Lillian. However, she said no, but that they could carry on dating, which they did. Unbeknownst to anyone at this time, Ariel was planning the kidnapping and imprisonment of a girl to use as a sex slave. He became obsessed with sadomasochistic sex, and now that Nilda was gone, he was looking for a new person to abuse. The girl he would abduct is Michelle Knight. Michelle had a rough childhood. Born on April 23, 1991, she grew up living with her mother, Barbara Knight, and her two younger brothers in their car and at some points in social service housing. Michelle suffered daily sexual molestation from a family friend as a child. When she reached age 13, she ran away to escape the abuse and started living on the streets. However, she was later found by her father and returned home to her mother's house. I'm really hoping that's because he didn't know what was going on. But can you imagine literally choosing to live on the streets 
rather than stay at home due to the abuse and then being forced to go back there. At age 17, Michelle became pregnant after being gang raped by three boys at her school. She decided to keep the baby. However, Joey was later taken away from her by social services after being assaulted by Barbara's boyfriend. Michelle then moved into her own apartment where she met a new friend, Emily Castro. On August 22, 2002, Michelle got lost on her way to the social services office where she had a meeting about how to get her son Joey back. However, she would never make it to that meeting. Ariel Castro spotted Michelle looking lost. He parked his car and followed her into the dollar store where she had gone in to ask for directions. Castro then approached Michelle to ask her if she needed a ride. Michelle immediately recognized Castro from the pictures that Emily had shown him of her and accepted his offer. Little did Michelle know that that decision would change her life forever. Once the two were in the van, he told Michelle that he needed to stop at his house on his way to the social services office to check on his puppies. He invited Michelle inside to choose one out for Joey. Michelle, whose son Joey loved puppies, happily accepted. Once inside, Castro led Michelle into a bedroom upstairs, locking the door behind him. He then attacked her, covering her nose and mouth until she fell unconscious. When Michelle woke up, Castro tied her up with electrical cords. He wrapped a cord around her ankles, her neck, and her wrists, which were behind her back, and then tied them all together. Michelle tried to fight off her attacker, but at four feet and seven inches, she was no match for 180-pound Ariel Castro. After he masturbated onto her, he suspended her a foot above the ground using a taut cable that had been pre-installed going from one bedroom wall to the other. It was clear to Michelle that he had been planning this for a while. He then stuffed a dirty sock in her mouth and taped it there, turned on the radio, and left her hanging there, scared and alone. I couldn't even imagine the fear that she was going through at this point. The following day, Barbara reported Michelle missing to the police. However, she claims that the police did not take her report seriously, as they assumed that she was upset about Joy being taken away by social services and had run away because of that. After an unknown amount of time, Ariel came back and without warning cut the cord holding her up and she fell hard to the ground. He then dragged her to an adjacent bedroom and raped her. After he was finished, he dragged her down to the basement where he used rusty chains to tie her to a support pole. Her hands were tied behind her back and a motorcycle helmet was placed on her head. This is how he would leave her. Over the next few months, he would come down once a day to feed her and up to seven times a day to rape her. That is actually the worst thing that I've ever heard. He is a complete and utter monster. Ariel continued to date Lillian Roldan during this time, maintaining a seemingly normal and non-abusive relationship with her. She even stayed overnight with him on occasion while Michelle was tied up in the basement. Ariel also had members of his Latin music band over during this time. Michelle would hear Ariel crank the music to prevent them from hearing any noise she made while chained up downstairs. Eventually, Ariel brought Michelle back upstairs to one of the bedrooms and used chains to restrain her to the bed. The windows had now been covered with dark wool and barbed wire to prevent the neighbors seeing in and to prevent Michelle from escaping. While upstairs, Michelle became pregnant. When Ariel found out, he starved her and beat her in the stomach with a barbell until she had a miscarriage. That's just absolutely horrific. In January 2003, Michelle tried to escape. She managed to pick the lock with a needle that she had stolen one day when Castro had let her shower. However, she did not realize that he had only gone to the backyard. So she actually managed to get the chains off. She heard him come back inside, ran back into the bed, and threw the chains back on. Ariel noticed something was different about the chains and realized that she had tried to escape, and he brought her back down to the basement and tied her back up to the pole as punishment. She was there for several more weeks before being brought back upstairs and chained to the mattress again. 
In April 2003, Michelle became pregnant again, and again, Ariel kicked her in the stomach and forced her to miscarry a second time. Soon after her second miscarriage, Castro confessed to Michelle that he was looking for another girl to abduct, and this time he wanted a blonde. This girl would be Amanda Berry. Born on April 22, 1986, Amanda Berry grew up less than three miles away from where she would later be held captive for over 10 years. Amanda's parents divorced when she was young, after which her father, John Berry, moved to Tennessee. Amanda grew up spending her summers there. However, during the school year, she lived in Cleveland with her mother, Luanna Miller, and her sister, Beth. Amanda attended Wilbur Wright Middle School with Castro's daughters, Emily and Angie Castro. She also worked part-time at Burger King, where she met her boyfriend, Denizo Diaz, in March 2003. It was on April 21, 2003, just after 7.30 p.m. after clocking out of her shift at Burger King and starting to walk home that Amanda Berry first met Ariel Castro. As Amanda started the three-mile journey home, Ariel Castro and his daughter Arlene drove by. Castro noticed Amanda walking alone, and he had had his eye on her for quite some time. He quickly went to drop Arlene off and then circled back to Amanda. Amanda was now talking to her sister on her cell phone. Castro pulled over to the curb beside her and asked if she wanted a ride. Amanda, who had recognized Arlene when they drove by earlier, said yes and told her sister, gotta go, I've got a ride. That would be the last time she would speak to her sister for 10 years. When Amanda got in the van, she immediately realized that Arlene was no longer there. Castro drove past her house and Amanda asked where they were going. Castro replied that he was taking her home to see his daughter Angie. When they arrived at 2207 Seymour Drive, he invited her inside and led her upstairs under the ruse that Angie was in the bathroom up there. He led her into a different bedroom than the one Michelle was chained up in and attacked her. Amanda tried to fight really hard, but she was only five foot one and was no match for Ariel Castro, who easily overpowered her. After raping her, he duct taped her arms and legs together, put duct tape over her mouth, a bicycle helmet over her head, and carried her downstairs to the basement. There, he chained her up by the waist to the same pole that Michelle had been tied up to many times now, and left her there in the dark. Amanda's mother, Luanna Miller, knew something was wrong immediately after Amanda did not return home from work. This is because Amanda had been so excited that her birthday party was the next day and she had a nail appointment later that night. Just after midnight, Luanna reported her missing to the 1st District Cleveland Police Department. Luanna told police about how Amanda had called her crying during her work shift earlier that night after being upset by her brother-in-law, Tony, sorry, Teddy Serrano's affair. The police interviewed him along with Amanda's boyfriend, Denizo Diaz. Denizo told police that he received a call from Amanda's cell phone around midnight, but he could not hear anything. Denizo became the prime suspect in the police's investigation. The case quickly drew a lot of media attention and was featured regularly on Cleveland and national news networks, all of which Michelle was watching on the TV that Castro had put in her room to keep her occupied. She immediately suspected that Castro had taken Amanda. Meanwhile, Castro continued sexually assaulting Amanda and Michelle whenever he pleased. A few nights after Amanda was abducted, she attempted to escape. However, Castro caught her and duct taped her arms and legs together again. As punishment for her attempted escape, he viciously sexually assaulted her again. On April 28, 2003, Castro called Luana Miller off Amanda's cell phone after hearing her statement on the news that evening. He told her, I have your daughter, she's healthy and okay, and then hung up. A few minutes later, he called her back and told her Amanda was going to be his wife now and then hung up again. It was several weeks after Amanda was abducted that Ariel finally introduced his two prisoners. Except it didn't exactly go like that. 
beforehand, Castro gave Michelle a blanket to cover herself with, as he did not want Amanda to see that she was naked and chained to the mattress. Then, when he brought Amanda upstairs into Michelle's bedroom, he introduced Amanda as his brother's girlfriend. However, Michelle immediately recognized her as Amanda Berry, Cleveland's newest missing girl and her new prison. Did Castro really expect Amanda to believe that? Luanna Miller went on a relentless campaign to find her daughter. She reached out to news reporters and journalists and covered Cleveland in missing persons posters. The FBI were now involved in the missing persons case surrounding Amanda's disappearance. They pleaded with the public for information and stated that they were treating Amanda's disappearance as a kidnapping. After seeing this on the news in her room, Ariel Castro would taunt Michelle saying, at least someone is looking for her. He truly is the worst human being alive. Well, he's not alive anymore. Spoiler alert. Denise Diaz was still the prime suspect in the investigation. His car was impounded and searched. His home was also searched, and he was given a lie detector test, which he obviously passed. This poor teenager just lost his girlfriend, and now he's being subs- suspected of her murder. I couldn't even imagine what he's going through. In August 2003, Michelle became pregnant for the third time. She later told investigators that he starved her for several weeks, as well as beat her and even jumped on her stomach to make her miscarry. However, even with all of this, it took several months before she actually did. Ariel Castro still had guests over to his house during this time, including his brothers, O'Neill and Pedro, and also his still girlfriend, Lillian uh, Roldan, who occasionally stayed overnight. However, after Lillian heard the TV on in Michelle's room one night and started asking questions, Castro only began spending the night at her house. One day, Castro brought Michelle into the room where Amanda was and they were able to speak for the first time. They acknowledged that they knew each other from school as Michelle had been a few grades behind. However, he only left them in the room for a few moments together and Michelle was soon taken back to her own room. Ariel Castro broke up with Lillian in October 2003. His life was just too chaotic, I guess, with two prisoners and actively planning to take a third girl that he just didn't have time for a girlfriend anymore. For the next few months, Castro continued sexually assaulting Michelle and Amanda daily. Michelle later reported that Castro treated Amanda much better than her, giving her better food and accommodations than Michelle. Castro also always saved his worst beatings for Michelle, treating her like his personal punching bag. In January 2004, the police showed up at Castro's home to interview him in relation to abduction and child endangerment charges. A parent had complained that Castro had picked up her son and another kid who went to a different school and dropped the other kid off and then drove to Wendy's with her son still in the bus. Castro then ordered her son to lie down and shut up and left him alone on the bus for hours. After returning, he drove around for a while and then finally dropped him off at his school. However, Castro did not answer the door when the police knocked and the officers never returned. I'm sorry, but I feel like that is maybe something that the police should have followed up on. Like it's child endangerment after all. Um, This is just a huge missed opportunity by police and just completely unbelievable. A few months later, Ariel Castro would kidnap his third victim, and this would be Gina de Jesus. Gina is an interesting victim because of how closely uh, her family is tied to Ariel Castro's family. Gina herself is Ariel's daughter, Arlene Castro's best friend, and Castro is longtime friends with Felix de Jesus, Gina's father, and Tita de to Jesus, Gina's uncle. Sorry, I'm just completely butchering Gina's last name here. Tito was also a frequent visitor at Castro's home on Seymour Drive, but just like everyone else, he was never let in past the kitchen. Gina attended special education classes, 
although she was actually 14, her mother said that she was mentally around the age of 10 um, at the time of her kidnapping. On April 2nd, 2004, Gina was walking home with Arlene Castro. Arlene called her mom, Nilda, to ask if she could go over to Gina's house, but Nilda said no because she was grounded. Gina then said goodbye to her best friend and started the walk home. Castro saw Gina walking alone and pulled up beside her in his van. He told Gina that he was looking for Arlene and asked for her help. Gina recognized Castro immediately and got in his van happy to help. When they started driving, he asked Gina if she could help him move a speaker in his house and she agreed. He's just using her kindness against her. What an asshole. When they arrived, he led her upstairs. She became frightened and asked to leave. He then got her into the basement, tied her to the pole and raped her. Michelle said that she could hear her desperate screams from upstairs as Gina desperately tried to fight off her attacker. When Castro was finished, he put the motorcycle helmet over her head and left her there. At 5.09 p.m., her mother, Nancy Ruiz, reported her missing to the police. Denizo, Amanda's boyfriend, was also interviewed in relation to Gina's disappearance, but obviously he was cleared. The day after Gina's disappearance, the community organized a search. Castro went and helped search for her and consoled her family members. And that's just completely despicable. Errol became paranoid after kidnapping Gina as he thought that one of the security cameras around the school had seen him lurking there before he kidnapped her. On April 4th, 2004, he wrote a four-page confession note in which he claimed that he was a sexual predator but accused his three victims of being responsible for their own captures. He said, quote, These women are here against their will because they made the mistake of getting in the car with a total stranger. This makes me so angry because he literally wasn't a stranger to these girls. They all knew him through his daughters, and he used that to his advantage. He later says, the bottom line is, I'm a sexual predator who needs help, but I don't bother to get it. Amazingly, he said in his letter that he didn't know how old Gina was, but I think you can all agree that this is complete BS since she was literally his daughter's best friend. On April 9th, 2004, Castro is believed to have given the police an anonymous tip that Fernando Collin, Nilda's new partner, was involved in the disappearance of Gina. After interviewing and polygraph testing him, he was cleared, obviously. Fernando then suggested that the FBI look into Ariel Castro. If they had taken this tip seriously, they could have saved his victims years of torture. Years later, after Castro's arrest, FBI agent Steve Anthony denied that Fernando Collin had ever told the FBI to investigate Castro. Arlene Castro became depressed and began self-harming after Gina's disappearance. She felt responsible for Gina's disappearance as she had been the last one to see her. And Castro just let his daughter go through this, fully having the ability to completely end her pain at any time. In June 2004, Castro moved Gina into the pink bedroom with Michelle. He chained their feet together and provided them with one plastic portable toilet for them both to share. These two grew very close while in prison together and formed a bond like sisters. They would even hold on to each other and comfort each other while Castro raped and beat them. In July 2004, Nilda and Fernando became engaged. After Castro found out, he told Nilda that he still loved her and asked her to leave Fernando and come back to him. She told him that she would never come back to him because of his abuse. Like, what did Castro really expect her to say? Then, mere weeks later, on July 15, 2004, Ariel Castro brought his daughters, Emily and Arlene, to the Cleveland Police Department to report Fernando Cullen for sexually molesting them. Since Nilda was their legal guardian, she was called to sign the release forms. She had never heard of these allegations before arriving at the police station that day. 
Nilda claims that Castro was excited when she arrived at the police station and offered to buy her a new car if she went along with the allegations. Six days later, Fernando Collin was arrested on suspicion of kidnapping and rape. He was released on bail and moved into a hotel, leaving Nilda and her children in his home during the legal proceedings. What a good guy. Colin later moved in with his sister, Sonia. Two weeks after Fernando's arrest, Emily Castro was hospitalized for overdosing on methamphetamine. She later told her mother when she got home from the hospital that it was Castro who had given her the money to buy, buy the drugs. Emily later ran off to Indiana to live with her sister, Angie, before the Fernando Collin trial so she didn't have to testify. That summer, Castro bought the girls notebooks and pens so that they could draw and keep journals. He would then read their journals to see what they said about him and get offended if it was anything less than flattering. Like, what did you expect them to say? You're an actual piece of shit. Amanda was the girl who wrote the most about her experience as a prisoner in the notebooks provided by Castro. She chronologically detailed the sexual abuse that she endured and Good thing she did because this would later help prosecutors create the 977-count indictment against Ariel Castro when he was finally caught and convicted in 2013. All right, guys, so that is where we are going to leave it for this episode. Don't forget to tune in next time for part two where we get into his trial and the girl's escape and everything like that. I hope that you guys liked what you heard this week. And if you did, please like, comment, subscribe, all of that good stuff. Um, Thank you guys so much for tuning in and I will see you guys next time.